to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. I'm your host, Dr. Onit Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has worked at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts, hear stories from the emergency department, and listen to people who have struggled from addiction. Each episode, we will answer questions from you, our listeners. To learn more about the show, submit a question, access educational material, or even take a quiz, you can visit us on hightruths.com. I am very excited for today's episode. We have a very important question and an outstanding speaker and expert who will be talking about a uh, diagnosis that people think is rare, but actually is very common. Um, Let's hear our question from Laura Kincaid. Laura is a first-year medical student at Chicago Medical School. So we are so excited to have medical students coming in, calling in for our show. So let's hear from Laura. Hello, Dr. Lev. My name is Laura Kincaid, and I'm a first-year medical student at the Chicago Medical School. My question is, why do some people vomit or scrommet from using marijuana, while dronabinol is a cannabis medication that's used to help nauseousness and appetite? Thank you, Laura Kincaid, for your question, and good luck in your first year of medical school. Um, How exciting it is to have another medical student calling in. And uh, just a side story, uh, my daughter is a first-year medical student like you, and just the other day, she called me frantically, or I'd say pseudo-frantically, because she had fatigue and a butterfly rash. And she looked it up, and she was certain she had lupus. And uh, I looked at her and said, you have excessive studying and wearing a mask. So, Laura, I hope you don't suffer from first-year medical student syndrome, Um, of fearing diseases that you're studying about. But uh, Laura, your question is definitely uh, very important. And I knew exactly who to ask about my most favorite diagnosis, cannabis hyperemesis syndrome, also known as scrometing. And to answer your question, I have a world-renowned expert on cannabis hyperemesis syndrome, emergency physician and toxicologist, Dr. Jeff LaPointe. Dr. LaPointe, welcome to High Truths. Hi, thank you so much for having me. This is great. Dr. LaPointe, you're board certified in emergency medicine. You're board certified as a medical toxicologist. You are the chief of the division of toxicology at Kaiser Permanente. A lot of things to be in awe about. And and you run a level one center of excellence for cannabis hyperemesis syndrome. That's very true. That is very true. We are we are a, a center of excellence and level one receiving facility. That's correct. And uh, to explain to our lay audience, um, there are different levels for certain um, medical conditions for hospitals. For example, there's a level one trauma center where I work at, which is the highest type of trauma center. Um, there are center of excellences for stroke or cardiac care. And Dr. LaPointe has a center of uh, excellence for uh, marijuana. What is cannabis hyperemesis syndrome except for something that's very hard to pronounce it's such a wonderful question from the and it's so good to get it from a medical student um who as an aside you know they're they're lucky to have cannabinoid receptor physiology in their curriculum when you and i went to medical school it wasn't it wasn't even in there it wasn't even in the book so so i guess at its basic definition cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome represents um, a malfunction of a really important receptor system we have in our bodies. And so you already have cannabinoid receptors in your body. And um, one of the one of my favorite things, Renit, when we used to like talk um, at some of these conferences you would invite me to, is that I would get to tell the audience that all of them have occupied cannabinoid receptors right now. And it would blow some of their minds, yeah. you know, the people who would never touch marijuana. My brain. Yeah, right. No, it's legal as yours. And so cannabinoid hyperemesis is the extreme side of, of this pathway where it has adapted to people smoking so much marijuana that this, this really important endogenous system that you use to function every day has gone haywire. And that's why it's, that's why I think it's really complicated to think about. It's really complicated to define. But what happens is people smoke too much marijuana, usually high potency, usually high frequency in their use. Um, and after a while, 
they start to notice that they might have some abdominal pain or vomiting, and then they present to the emergency department. Some of them notice that um, these symptoms only get better with hot water. Um, and that's that's kind of the clinical syndrome that we see. And for someone like uh, Dr. Lev and myself, we see a lot of people with appendicitis. We see a lot of people with inflamed gallbladders or, or surgical abdomens from free air or blood in the belly. And, and they look very different than someone screaming and bicycling and doing jumping jacks or, or screaming and vomiting, which is where the scrometing term comes from. Yeah. So I call it the audible diagnosis because I don't even need to turn my head. There's only one thing that makes that, that terrible sound. Yeah, absolutely. For me, it's, it's, it's visual. Cause I, if you're coming in with 10 out of 10 abdominal pain and you're bicycling in the air on your back, like, and, and just rolling and rolling and rolling, like people with peritonitis don't do that. They're, they're, they're generally like, hey, don't touch me, you know, but the right. screaming, I think you were, I think of all people I've talked to, you were the one, um, they were the first person that I heard say scrometing. I had never, I, and I don't know if that's a, if that's a fair attribution, but, um, I'm going to run with it. It's your show anyway. So I think that I, that I can't take that. credit for making up the word. It was, it was somebody wrote like a little bylaw in one of the, um, emergency medicine kind of throwaway magazines. Um, but I definitely popularized it. And, um, and that's why it's my absolute favorite diagnosis because you and I had a, a press conference, we're kind of jumping ahead here, but we had a press conference to talk about the publication that you are first author in, where we we saw we were in the middle of an opioid epidemic, and we we're dealing with the issue of opioids. And we had this flood of patients doing exactly what you're describing, riding a bicycle on their back in on the hospital gurney, begging for opioids. And that's what they were getting treated. They were getting treated with uh, dilaudid. And, uh, you know, I came to you and said, we have to have a better way. This can't, we cannot be turning all these people who are addicted to marijuana to be addicted to opioids. And we got to stop that. And uh, you helped us create a guideline for physicians of what to do instead. Okay, we're not going to give you opioids for your abdominal pain. What are we going to do instead? And uh, so we were very excited about the publication, and uh, we called for a press conference, and nobody showed up. <laughs> nobody showed up, um, except for one journalist, uh, Wendy Fry, and she sat there, you know, taking notes and acting very interested. And and I think there, you know, I, it allowed me to go off script um, from the talking points in front of me, and I just said, you know. Um, the hallmark sign of cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome is scrometing. And she said, what's scrometing? And I said, screaming and vomiting. And she published that. And the next day, I understood what going viral meant. Uh, because now if you Google scrometing, it's everywhere. And, uh, right. and it's also why it's such a great word. It describes exactly what's happening and, and my patients know it. And, and so it, it's not just a fun word. I feel like it made a clinical difference. I don't know if you find that, Jeff, but if I tell people you have cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome, I said that for five years and they would be like, you don't know what you're talking about. Right. Um, but if I say, dude, you're scrometing and they'll be like, oh, I guess I am. Yeah, I think I know I think that that's I think that that's really important. It and so much of this on on the patient side and on the physician side is about education and getting people to be aware. And sometimes, you know, I can sit there and and you know, we were the first people ever to try one of the therapies that maybe we'll end up talking about today to try capsaicin. Um and that's cream at Kaiser you belly. started using capsaicin cream at Kaiser and and putting it in your Pixis for yeah, and and so maybe maybe just a second of background there. So in two thousand three, two thousand four in Australia, um, there was the emergence of a couple clinical case reports where people who smoked a bunch of marijuana presented with this diffuse but severe um, and clinically not correlated abdominal pain with intractable vomiting uh, in association with high frequent use of marijuana. And, and that's kind of the first emergence of the syndrome, cannabinoid hyperemesis. And one of the hallmarks in these early papers was that, that 
they found relief in hot water. The hotter they could get it, the better it would be. And why is that? I and mean, then just like this weird thing. And so many of these young people, uh, so many of these people were young. They went to surgery. They had their gallbladders ripped out. They got endoscopies. They got, you know, all these kinds of therapies. They got probably started on opioids because that's one of the horrors of opioids, right? Like they, that becomes a, we all become yeah. hammers to treat pain and, and everything looks like an opioid nail to us. You know, we only have that one, one method and that's, that's a sad thing. And I think that started to change hopefully, but, um, and so, yeah. Um, and so that was kind of the homework thing. Like, why does it get better when they get hot? Why is it better when they feel hot? Cause they would run out, they would just run out of hot water at their homes. Right. And so, uh, that, that was like the really weird thing about it. And so we started to think about, so like the lights in your house right now, right? There, there's three kind of lights, three kind of states of a light, right? You could turn a light on, you could turn a light off, or you could have a dimmer. And we, we have chemicals released between nerve endpoints, neurotransmitters in our brain, right? And you could, you could send some or not send some light on, light off. Cannabinoid receptor helps whatever neurotransmitter that is, whether it's excitatory, like, like norepinephrine or glutamate or GABA that makes you sleepy. Can the cannabinoid kind of modulates these little releases and makes it like a dimmer. It's a very inherent, natural, elegant system that lets your body fine tune the amount of neurotransmitter. And it turns out when these people bombard themselves with outside cannabinoids, because you have inside natural cannabinoids that do good things, those systems become completely malfunctioned. And that's when we see these syndromes. So that's, that's kind of like how I would describe like the underlying pathophysiology of something like this. Um, but we thought that you can't really put everyone in these kind of conditions in a shower. Someone screaming and vomiting or doing jumping jacks or bicycling and writhing on the floor, um, like in a cartoonish way. This is the funniest thing if you've never seen it. And they're vomiting and they're yelling. And then you're going to put that person in a hard tile emergency room shower. That's just like the recipe for disaster. Yeah, well, they, they won't get off the gurney. They're, it's, it's, um, it's dramatic to hear and to see. Um, but they're miserable. They're yeah. absolutely miserable. And, and, you know, it, if you work in, in the ED or you work in, you know, in medicine, um, and then you look at the chart and the person's another tip off is the person's been there 10 times in the past four days for the exact same thing. And they've gotten three CTs and four ultrasounds and they're being referred to GI and surgery later on. Um, that, that was always kind of like one of the, you know, unpublished, but, um, you know, I would say colloquially, uh, unofficially diagnostic, <laughs> you know, you're a young person who's gotten every workup from the world. And it's like, if you walk in and go exactly how much marijuana do you smoke and what, what strain and what potency. And what's important is I tell my patients, like, listen, this may happen to you again. You need to understand that all these CAT scans that you're getting are additive. Um, especially when you're young, you, you only get so much radiation before you're now at risk for cancer. And that's what I said. I tell, you know, our inside language is you're giving yourself cancer because you're getting so many CAT scans. And I'll try to explain to the patients, listen, keep this CAT scan. I'll give them a copy. If this happens to you again, show this to the doctor so you don't get more CAT scans so you can get treatment, but you don't need to get more radiation. Yeah, that's, that's a great point. I always, um, you know, we, we like open up like apps and stuff and calculate their risk and show it to let them read it. But these are not the, <laughs> I don't think that all would work that well with these patients until they feel better, but you make a great point. Um, I think that what you brought up, something you brought up earlier was a really wonderful thing. Um, it was, and it's kind of how we touched off on the discussion about getting them to buy in to what you're telling them, because some people will, will phrase this to a patient as, well, now you're allergic to marijuana. And that's not how it works. That's good. Yeah. That's a, yeah, yeah. It's, it's tempting, right? It's like almost a seductive way, like you're allergic to marijuana. But, but the thing is, in the patient's mind also, there's a, a temporal disconnect. Well, I didn't smoke marijuana today. Why do I have the symptoms? I didn't smoke marijuana today, right? And so understanding that, and, you know, we had written some of the first work on it. We had done some of the first therapeutic work with this. I considered myself like pretty well-versed. And I couldn't get patients to believe me until they saw it on Wikipedia. 
So your point about putting it into a relatable way for them, I think is just such a wonderful thing. And that that's true in like any substance abuse stuff, any like addiction med, when you relate and, and are able to like, you know, set off that light bulb for them, that might be one of the more therapeutic things that ends up getting done. Right. That's why I say that's the, the best accomplishment of my medical career is, is uh, putting, putting that word out there for the public. I don't know. You might be, you might be short selling yourself. There. <laughs> and definitely the most fun. I spoke at a national meeting and I said scrometing and, um, and then I went to another meeting and, uh, and the guy, one of the officers, there was a law enforcement meeting and they said, I don't, I don't remember her name, but I, I just call her Dr. Scrometing. So it's like, okay, I'll take that. <laughs> Wonderful. I love that. And you'll like this one, uh, Jeff. I, uh, when I was at, uh, at the White House, we get to edit, um, other people's, uh, you know, talking points. And, um, the Surgeon General was going to testify on marijuana. And so I got to see his talking points and I put in scrometing there. And I was waiting to see if he'd use it and <laughs> he didn't use it. But, but the word is out, even up level government. They all know what scrometing is. And, Dr. Nora Wolkoff, the head of the National Institute of Drug Abuse, she didn't say the word scrometing, even though I tried to stick that in there, but she kind of acted it out. And you could see Senator Dianne Feinstein's listening to her. You know, the people are coming in in horrible pain, and it's terrible. And, you know, the senator was like, oh, wow, I have grandchildren. I hope that doesn't happen to them. Um, so, yeah, so it, 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 uh, it, I, I'm waiting for it to be an ICD-10 code. That you can, there you like, go. Yeah, you need to be able. There to you go. Know. There is one for cannabinoid apparatus, but not for scrumming. I think right. that. Well, I think I'm you should try to copyright it. But you should get a nickel every time someone says it. <laughs> uh, no, I just I get to I get to enjoy anytime somebody says it. Um, I I want to get back to Laura's question, and right. she specifically says, "Hey, this is supposed to help your appetite." The FDA has approved THC for the use of HIV wasting syndrome and to help with um, appetite of people who are on chemo. So if this, and this is what patients say, this is supposed to help your appetite. How come people are vomiting because of it? Yeah, that's a good question. So there's, there's different, um, you know, being a med student is a perfect place for this question because you're going to dive deep into the weeds of pharmacology and how things work and pathophysiology. And that's what separates us, right? Like that's, that's the difference of, you know, when I give a medication, I imagine a receptor that it's going to and how it works because I'm responsible ultimately for every single thing. I've no, done. no, no, so, that's because you're a toxicologist. I don't I'm a imagine. Huge dork. You don't, you don't picture, you don't picture the actual receptor where that, where it's going into and you don't see all the thing. Okay. Just me. So, um, all right. Well, let me ask, I would answer your question with a question, which is annoying. How come a little bit of sunlight gives you a tan and helps you helps with your vitamin D pathways, but, but too much gives you cancer. Why is that? Right? Why is a little radiation actually good for you? That's called hormesis, right? So why it's the differing effects of different levels and concentrations. Your body, your patient's body will not only be infinitely complex, it's infinitely unique to how other people might react to the same dose, right? So in small doses and small and, you know, reasonably frequent or infrequent um, doses, there is some thought, although never really borne out by, by rigorous testing about, you know, nausea and vomiting, um, and different, you know, whether that's chemotherapy or HIV wasting, um, you know, maybe that HIV wasting is probably the best one, but like really never really borne out if you compare it against undansetron or other medications for nausea and vomiting. So, but, um, just to add for the lay public, you're talking about using THC for nausea and comparing it to other medicines that we're using for nausea and vomiting, such as Zofran or Phenergan or other medicines. Um, right. And you're saying that THC is not better than things that we already have. Right. It never, it never has tested much better. And, and I don't know, there's, that's a, you could do a whole hour on 
the methodology and stuff like that. But what we have available is suggests that. So anecdotally, people will say, oh, when I get nauseous and I use marijuana or use THC, I, I feel better. So that's how that kind of common thing comes up. Um, when you are smoking 80, 90% THC for days and days and days and days, for years and years, um, that that's a much different dose that that system has seen than I got nauseous and took, you know, smoked a joint or took an edible. Um, so it's what you're talking about is the relative dose and the, the proteins that are the receptors for these things. So for the med students and professionals, G proteins, um, for the lay people, like, it's not just like a little antenna sticking outside the cell. It's actually like a real big complex that moves around and stuff. It's very complicated. Um, it's response to being bombarded all the time by a cannabinoid. So, so we have cannabinoids, remember inside of our body, they actually have work that they do uh, at an outside cannabinoid, uh, whether that's THC or any other ones, it's response to that massive bombardment is like, Hey, I'm going to go away. And it actually goes inside the cell and you don't get it anymore. So that's, that's the response to large, frequent, huge doses, just like radiation causing cancer instead of some sunlight being good for you. And uh, the point is FDA approved a pure amount, less than 3% THC for these syndromes. They didn't approve 28% THC. Or 98 um, Right, ninety-eight. You know, but it's it's apples and and oranges. Very different thing, and it explains why at the beginning of our career, nobody came to the emergency department with marijuana poisoning. It was a joke, right? It was literally a joke. And now, every single day, how often do you see this diagnosis? It it ebbs and flows. We definitely saw a huge uptick uptick with the uh, the pandemic. I'll tell you, if if anything will bring out someone's substance abuse issues or problems with drugs and alcohol. The pandemic was a bellwether for that. Yeah, it probably um, didn't help that marijuana was declared an essential business. Um, right. Well, it helped our business, I guess. Brought us right. Up. But I think that the question that you just asked, Bernie, is one of the most important ones ever. People have been using marijuana for 4,000 years. Why weren't ERs and, you know, clinics and whatever there were, you know, so far long ago, why weren't they packed with people scrobbiting? I mean, this is an impressive presentation. This would be handed down to generation to generation of, of healthcare workers, physicians, and everyone. It, it's not subtle. Like this is, this is like, oh my God, the first time you see this, right? So why didn't that happen? And so the, the reason, the best explanation for that. There's a lot of a lot of things that come together to this. But the best explanation is that the marijuana that people were using medicinally or abusing or smoking, whatever you want to call it, was probably four to seven percent THC. Like when I was a kid in the in the 70s and 80s, like that was probably the mean concentration. And not and only that, you know that from law enforcement seizures of marijuana at that right, time, it was right. the average seizure, you know, they would they would test it and it was like three percent. Yeah, and, and, and also had a higher percentage. So in the flower of marijuana, in the plant, there's all these different chemicals and, and combinations of things. And one of them is CBD. And so you have THC, which is what makes people high. Uh, and, and you have CBD. And, and there's some thought that maybe they work as a gas and brake with each other. And the CBD concentration stayed the same. And as medicinal marijuana took hold, and then later on, it became a kind of a cottage industry, the, the THC concentrations rose almost exponentially. So then you have like your average. Genetically engineered. These are very smart right. um, agriculturists doing this to the plant. They're, I mean, they're geniuses. They are able to genetically alter a plant for this specific effect. Right. And the, so the CBD went down or stayed the same and the THC went up. So we have plants on the high end, 30 something percent THC, and you have extracts that can approach 90 something percent THC. So think about it this way. This is how we always like to tell it to people. Let's say people are drinking beers for thousands and thousands of years, just your regular beer. And it has five to 7% ethanol in it. And then I make it, I make it illegal or it goes away or whatever you want to explain and, and you stop using it or whatever. And then I bring it back 
And everyone goes, well, this was safe. It was a joke. Everyone was using it forever. No one goes to the ER because of this. This doesn't hurt anyone. And when I bring it back, I make it 90 something percent moonshine. And I expect the, the people to know the difference that, that when they drink the same volume that they did in the beer and just had a beer, that they drink the same volume. They drink a pint of, of Everclear or whatever. And that's, that's the exact comparison. That's what medical or recreational marijuana is today. And people don't have a lot of education on that we, you know, there, there's a lot of different reasons for that, but that's the concentration difference. It's, you know, 20 odd times more than what people were seeing before. Yeah. That's a very good analogy. I like that with the, the, uh, a beer and the, the moonshine difference, um, and the receptors, um, the disease scrumming, uh, cannabis, cannabinoid, you know, is it cannab cannabinoid or is it cannabis hyperemesis syndrome? I think in our, I've heard it cannabinoid. It's used kind of interchangeably, but uh, I think the technical term would be cannabinoid hyperemesis. So it used to be called cyclical vomiting. See, we, even when we were writing our paper, we kept changing the name because at first it was cyclical vomiting syndrome and then it was a cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome. And now, you know, we're going to, I'm going to call it scrumming, but it's a spectrum of disease. I think when, when stories started to come out about it, um, people who didn't end up in the emergency department would say, you know, I think I had that. I remember at one point I like needed to be in the shower a lot and, and I get the stomach ache and then it went away. So, you know, very mild cases. They didn't, they didn't even know that they had a problem till they heard about it on the news and think, Hey, I think I had that to the entire other extreme where now we're seeing headlines. Um, September 2019, Brian Smith Jr. was 17 years old and he loved the headline in the news is he loved weed. Then the vomiting began. Months later, he died. And he died. It's a case in the Midwest. Is it Indiana or? I think so. Yeah. And his, his mother was really outspoken about that. And then um, January 2019, Journal of Forensic Science. I'll say that. Again. January 2019, Journal of Forensic Science. They reported three people, 27-year-old man, 27-year-old female, 31-year-old man also died from uh, cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome. They found them with hypernatremia and er erosion to their esophagus from all the retching that they do. And all the way back, I saw in 2016 in the journal Gastroenterology, um, they mentioned a couple people who died, uh, frequent marijuana users found dead, um, uh, one in their home, one in the bathtub with the water still running. And they each had a long history of intractable uh, vomiting. They kept, they got to see the gastroenterologist back in 2016 and their autopsy showed um, hyponatremia, loss of salt and necrosis of their esophagus. Yeah. I mean, if, yeah, if you keep, you know, you keep vomiting nonstop from what it is and you're not taking in any, you know, fluids and electrolytes, like this should never be a fatal, this should never be a fatal disease. Right. It's just like, like diarrhea. Well, diarrhea you, in the Western also, world should never be fatal. It should we can be, we have supportive care. Actually. What's the ultimate treatment? I mean the the ultimate treatment would be we always we always you and I always go back and forth in this. Um you will say that it's never using marijuana again, right? Like that. Well if you stop using then it right. it won't happen. Now now that is actually true. Now but the the problem is, and I think we all know this because you keep seeing the same people and I do too, is that is that the that we've we've super selected out for patients who have made marijuana like almost a like religious part of their lives, right? So it, it takes a lot um, for them to be convinced um, and and for them to stop. And and the education that goes into that is huge. I think you're right. I think I'm not. I'm only slightly giving you a hard time because I I think that's fun. But but no, but because I think that. Uh, you and I come from not exactly the same place philosophically, and I gain more f from doing that with you, from talking back and forth. And I hope that, you know, we, we add that to each other. We're not exactly the same. You know what I mean? I do. Um, I do appreciate that. But you're way smarter than me. Um, that's Because we true. all know that toxicologists are the smartest ER doctors there are. That's, that's I do, very I do nice. To you. I learn a lot from you every time we, every time we talk. Well, there's two parts of treatment, right? There's treatment where they're 
writhing and screaming and, and, and scrumming in the emergency department and we have to help them so they don't die. And we, right. right you helped write that protocol. There are different things you could do besides opioids, um, such as uh, fluids or antipsychotic medications right. um, that get people better. And then there is, that's getting control of the situation. But then there's the preventive part. And I, right. I see prevention in every single, almost every single patient who comes to the emergency department. You know, grandma falls down. Um, you know, we're going to fix her up. But what can we do to prevent her from falling in the future, okay? Exactly. You had a heart attack, we're going to take care of that, but what can we do to prevent you from, you know, injuring your heart muscles in the future? So here again, so you've had this, you know, terrible reaction. Let's talk about how to prevent this from happening again. Um, and, uh, you know, the best way is not to use it. If you want to try smaller doses or whatever, then you're running the risk of having it happen to you again. Right. And we do know that if you've had it before, the chances that you will have it again are much, much higher. Someone will make some money at some point developing a some kind of quality, you know, low, relatively low THC, high CBD, you know, uh, uh, legalized marijuana or whatever. Well, I'm they, telling they, you at they, some point. They, um, they call it hemp. <laughs> right. But I mean, I mean, like, you know, a, a 15% with a, you know, 15% CBD, 15% THC, and then market it as th that's what you'll see. We'll have to be watching for that and, and educate people like, Hey, nothing's totally safe. Nothing's, you know, watch out for this. They're going to say it's cannabis, it's, it's scrometing proof or something. You never know. Like they're always, they'll always be I, I'm sure someone making I'm a mount sure trap. Part the smart people, um, uh, the the business industry, the marijuana industry is already kind of thinking about that. It was interesting. Um, we visited a marijuana dispensary and they themselves, the owners were concerned about the high potency uh, yeah. of the materials that they were selling. And they, they believed in responsible adult use. Um, but they, they themselves were alarmed by that. And to me, that's a red flag. When you yeah. see the people who are making money off of this worried about it, that tells you something. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's what's the fascinating thing about marijuana is that like, you know, medically we, we knew and know very little relative to many of the like drugs out there, right? Like, you know, some of these receptors weren't discovered until the 1990s, you know, and that, that didn't even make it into medical textbooks until after the, you know, maybe 2008, 2010. So, and if you consider these things have been, you know, uh, schedule one, that means they can't be studied by anyone. So you have from the well, 60 well, well, on, can, you know, it can be, it can be studied, right? There, it can't, there, but it can't get federal funding. There, there is, um, right now, um, as you know, before this year, there was one place, um, in Missouri that was growing all the marijuana that can be used. And, and they were doing studies with it. Um, and now, um, I don't have the exact numbers, but it was on one of my episodes. We've, um, the, the DEA is allowing up to 26, 30 more places to grow. You can't do this. I mean, there's different types of studies, right? There's studies right. like what you're doing. Okay. These are the patient populations that are already using that. And, right. you know, we can study that. And then there's studies where, well, I want to see if this has medicinal value. You can't buy pot from the dispensary and give it to right. patients when you know right. it has contaminations. You have to grow it in a pure um, manner and be able to test with that. So now there's going to be a lot more places that can grow. Uh, up to date, there was only one place in the entire United States that was allowed to grow pure um, plant with known amount of THC um, to do research in. Right. But, you know, I, and I'm sure things are probably going to start moving ahead a, a lot faster. But my point being that from people use it a lot in the 1960s, the chemical structure wasn't even known until 1964. Yeah. No one even knew about the receptors and what they look like until the 90s. It's illegal to study from 1972. It's illegal to have anywhere, right? And, you know, Controlled Substance Act says Schedule 1. So from 1972 to what's this, 2020? There's a lot more people using it than there's people studying it and understanding it. And the public has a 
a poor understanding of marijuana. They consider marijuana to be it always safe, always natural, no matter what. Right. And that's scary. Definitely agree with you there. I mean, um, yeah, the receptors, yeah. Back when I was in medical school, there weren't as many receptors to have even to yeah. know about. <laughs> it was yeah. easier for me at that time. I get worried um, every research. And and receptors. that's and that's the problem. And I think this is where you and I agree. Um, I don't wish to pass judgment on people, but I do think we need people to be informed consumers, and we don't have that now. And I make an analogy to tobacco. People who use tobacco now, they know the risks that they're taking, right. um, and they're they're making that decision. But right now, with marijuana, people are not making an informed decision. They're just hearing all the wonderful things. Um, and with research, there's you know. When people think, oh, yeah, we need research, who, you know, who, who's, it's like mom and apple pie, who doesn't want research? Um, but there's different types of research. I, I'm interested in the research on harms and prevention. Um, although I definitely see value in the research for medicinal purpose, but medicinal purpose means FDA approved, you know, like I know exactly what I'm getting. Yeah. Um, and, Absolutely. Uh, and not just, you know, some, whatever I'm buying on the internet. Right. Right. There, I have a really good question from Ahmed Henry. Ahmed is a substance abuse counselor in Las Vegas. And I thought his question was really thinking deep. He, when he heard about cannabis hyperemesis syndrome or grommeting, he compared it to opioid induced hyper induced analgesia. And he said, you know, are these connected? And and just to explain opioid-induced hyperanalgesia, I used to see this all the time where I had patients in the emergency department on having chronic pain. They've been on opioids for years at high doses. And if I barely put the stethoscope on their chest, they're like, ow, ow, ow. Oh, it's terrible. I mean, I didn't even touch you. Um, and because their receptors that you understand um, were all screwed up. That's my understanding. Um, and so he makes an interesting comparison. These are both idiosyncratic reactions, weird reactions to long-term drug use that cause opposite. You know, we're, pain medicines are supposed to help you, but with people who had this, these pain medicines were screwing things up and making people in more pain. And here we have, you know, marijuana who's oh, it's supposed to help with nausea, but it actually makes people throw up. Yeah, I think that's a great... I think that's a great, um, I think it's a great comparison. And, you know, the, and then there are a lot of instances where opioid receptors are found kind of commingling with cannabinoid receptors, not too many places because you don't have cannabinoid receptors in your, in your brainstem. Cause if you did, um, you would stop breathing when you got overdosed with THC, like much more frequently. Sure. Anything can happen with a mega, mega, mega dose, but I'm saying, you know, like you do with opioids, but I think that that's a, that's a really good. I actually hadn't um, hadn't had a question like that before. I think that's really wonderful. Yeah, um, that was because, very smart of him to ask. He found yeah. me, emailed me, and got that question in. And I want to give um, Ahmed from Las Vegas full credit for that for yeah. putting it together. Now, there might be some, you know, you could you could convention about little well it doesn't exactly work but but i think that 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 30,000 foot view of that i think is perfect um and and it's kind of these you know the far end of the extreme of something um i think that's really good yeah as a toxicologist does that make sense is that screwing things up um in their receptors and causing an yeah yeah i mean what you know with with um the the hyperalgesia with um opioids it's just you kind of just keep hitting these pain arcs in the same way, in the same way, in the same way. And like, you know, it's funny, and you know so much about opioids, but then you've seen those studies where they have someone put their hand in um, the coldest water you can imagine, right? With no drugs. And then they give them fentanyl, right? They give them a small 25 mic or whatever fentanyl dose. And then they, they have them put their other hand in and every single person can't take it as long after they got the opioid. You get opioids in the middle of surgery. Your opioid requirement is higher postoperatively. We've seen these things. So they're really interesting. So how an opioid affects a pain arc that, that, that 
makes you need more opioid is like the one of the craziest, saddest, scariest things, right? Um, I don't know that on the receptor level in cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome, the the cannabinoid receptors in this arc that kind of we said that kind of fine tunes your release of neurotransmitters. It it is bombarded and it goes away. It literally goes inside the cell and it should have been outside. It just puckers up. Um, the the arc with opioid hyperalgesia is a little bit different and it's a little it's pretty geeky. Okay, <laughs> but, but <laughs> you, you got the code there. I saw you here um, here than a, a receptor popping in and out of the membrane. Yeah, and that's and like look that was pretty geeky, right? So, yeah. um, but yeah, um, I think that that as a as a base like a, a philosophical comparison, I think is actually very very valuable. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I thought that uh, was very interesting. I think that's, I think that's so, wonderful. So as, as a toxicologist, do you understand why the heat helps people who are scrometing? Yeah. I, I, actually, I should just say that by the time they are scrometing, the heat doesn't help them anymore. Okay, that's for, I think, for the milder cases at that point. Sometimes I've had varying varying degrees of, of, of success. Of success. I, if I slather enough 1%, or 0.1% capsaicin cream on your belly, you're going to know about it. (laughs) (laughs) If anybody's thinking about trying this at home, um, you could buy capsaicin over the counter and you could put it on your abdomen if you're thinking you're having this type of reaction. But whatever you do, wash your hands right away and don't touch that and then touch your eye because then you'll end up in the ER with a different type of pain. Any mucous membranes. Any anything that you would think it would be unpleasant to have burning sensation on, please don't touch it. Um, you know, people have done that and then gone to the restroom, and you can imagine what happens. Um, it is it is not good. Or if you spread it too far high onto your chest, what would happen? That would be very not good. Right. Um, so but I will say, you if you it, do, when you use it, you cover it up, right? No, not always. I mean, you know, it's nice to put some takederm or something on there. Um, so that they, over it. yeah, some or something, yeah. So they they can't they they can't be exposed to it, and it's nice because you can't function um, in the shower. So so let let's say you get cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome. You um you you find that the shower helps you. You're like, hey, I'm gonna stop using all cannabinoids. I'm done. But you still got anywhere from five to ten days until this resolves, right? So you can't live in the shower. You can't live in the ER, but you can live. With some capsaicin on your belly, if you cover it up, you know, if you put some some tegaderm or something like that on it, I will say, in addition to the warning that you gave, if someone puts this on themselves and it is too hot and it is too painful and you have to have it off immediately, or as one of our psych patients who was misdiagnosed with this said, I am in a lake of fire as she screamed, um, but don't get water and try to rub it off. It is, it is not water soluble. So it's, that will be like napalm and you will spread it all over your body. If you have access to cold milk, which most people do in their homes, there's a chemical in the milk called casein and it breaks down capsaicin. So cold milk on a rag or cold milk dumped on an area that hurts from capsaicin will make it go away. That's a very important tip and one that I should have, uh, known about when I tried capsaicin on my husband's uh, arthritis on his foot and didn't know about. (laughs) Oh, dear. I told you you're smarter. Um, That's not true. (laughs) And uh, interesting. And capsaicin is over the counter and it's uh, sold as an arthritis medicine because it creates heat. And, And that's the theory is heat helps this syndrome. And, and do we even know why heat helps the syndrome? Yeah, that was the original question, and I and and I flittered away. I'm sorry. It was too geeky. No, no, it's so okay. Um, So in the beginning, we talked about the basics of how a cannabinoid receptor system works. It's the dimmer on the light of a neurotransmitter going back and forth between a synapse. So you lose the fine tuning ability. Well, it turns out there's another subtype of receptors. It's called TRPV1. What um, doesn't matter, but there's a subtype that at, that is activated by temperature over 41 degrees Celsius, and it is the only known receptor for capsaicin. That's why I tried it because I got stuck, and I'll say it publicly: I got stuck writing the cannabinoid chapter in Goldfranks, 
And I was a tox. I was just a new toxicology graduate. That's, I wanted Gold Franks is the like bible for toxicologists. Right. Right. But I got stuck writing like like if you want to make it a biblical reference like someone was writing really exciting chapters. There's like Maccabees or something. There's all these like fun things happening and I was like, well, I'm writing about marijuana that no one cares about, you know. So I I I that that whole thing brought me to this because at at the real geeky textbook level, as you go through all these receptor subtypes, you see this thing called trip V1 and it's the only known receptor for capsaicin. So then I can put a over the counter safe medication on someone's belly. And if it works, I have a mechanistic probe. I know that trip V1 is involved and then you can kind of start working backwards because if you use, if you use, um, let's say you do use Draperidol, let's say you use Haldol, they might work. But they tell me nothing about the mechanism. They tell me they, they're, they, they're useless to me in, in terms of trying to figure out actually why this happens. So that's what's beautiful about capsaicin. It tells me that trip V1 is involved definitively. So that's why we tried it. And because I'd never be able to get people in the shower. What are you going to do? It's like a car wash, wheel them in the gurney? Like, you know. I think you said you did that at Kaiser. You would take I, in the shower. I did. The first patient we had, I, I had someone take her in. And it was, she's an 18-year-old woman and I got I had to find a female security guard and a nurse and every, I mean it was like it was basically a complete yeah. Yeah. you know okay. mass casualty of it yeah it was a cluster that's a well well put so anyways that's that's why um it is currently unknown that is my theory um of why that works because it you, you've taken the system you made it malfunction you made the receptors go where they can't be used and then you found another little side system to hotwire it and to get it kind of functioning again. It's not perfect, but it kind of kicks things back into gear. Um, you're this newbie toxicologist and they're saying, okay, we'll let you write a chapter. We're, we're going to give you a subject that nobody cares about. And yeah. how you took that and uh, discovered new things and continue to do things. But more than that, you know, you have your geeky in, but you've, change that into clinical difference. And that's, you know, that that's what I can relate to, you know, because people say, oh, yeah, we've done these studies on these mice. Um, and I'm like, okay, good for you. How does that help me as a doctor? Yeah, that's so. exactly right. And I think that's a, you know, that's what always kind of, that's one of the things I'm passionate about is this, one of the failings of medical toxicology has sometimes been our PR work. We don't know how to like, I can, you know, if you can, you can be so smart and the people who taught me, you can be so smart. You can and tell everyone about all these pathways you memorize. But if you don't give the doctor, hey, your next shift, you can use this like this. Yeah. Hey, pa hey, patient, you have to know this about this if you're going to take risks. You know, that's that's where the rubber kind of meets through. That's the part of toxicology that's fun. So thank you. Um, I want people to, if they're interested in the publication that, um, you authored, we did together, um, they can go to the Western Journal of Emergency Medicine and look up uh, cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome, and you'll find it in March 2018. Um, a lot of people think that this is these, you know, I always see in the media, oh, these rare diagnosis, this rare mysterious illness, and it hasn't. We've been talking about this for how many years? Yeah, and we, we, we pulled... We pulled the data for all of Southern California um, Kaisers and, you know, just because it doesn't have the discharge diagnosis, the ICD-10 code for cannabinoid hyperemesis, if you look at marijuana intoxication or use disorder and link it up with nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain, you should see the reams of, of numbers that go down. And I'm like, oh my gosh, we have to study this one. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because it's like, really, it's what we know to be true from being in the, in the trenches but um, I don't think gets out there a lot. I, I do. I do want to say one one um, thing. I don't know how much more time we got. I know it's uh, been a while. But um, the most important things about cannabinoid hyperemesis for for physicians and for people who work and take care of patients is uh, one that we're not going to just assume it's that and cognitively turn off that it's not something else. We're actually going to have to think our way through it, and it's going to have to match our exam and stuff like that. Two. Um, uh, Radiation is not good for this. So if we can keep people out of the scanner, if we can keep these patients off the OR table, out of the GI suite, if they don't need it, and away from opioids. If you do those things, 
and then educate them on why it's happening. It's more important than any receptor thought I've given. It's more important than any mechanistic probe or, or shower or cream. If you can keep them out of the scanner, keep them away from the procedures that they don't need. If you're sure about this diagnosis, keep them away from opioids and educate them on why it's happening. You've done more for this than I will ever be able to do. Right. It's sometimes what we don't do that's more important than what we do do. Right. Laura Kincaid gave us this wonderful uh, question, and she's a first-year medical student. Do you have any words of wisdom for Laura? I think that what you're doing and the questions you're asking are some of the most important things. What separates out, um, when I think about being a physician, and what separates that out is the how. You can memorize Give water, give, you know, hot water, give capsaicin, give uh, droperidol for these people and then not care about the how and the why. And and that's not what it's about. The reason that you have to get into the weeds of, of every little mechanism and stuff, because it'll be you who, who uses that to think of the next thing, to think of the next, the next explanation that helps patients, the next therapy. That's why you're going through all this. So I think that what you're doing is wise beyond your, your years. Keep doing it. Um, keep applying like that knowledge. And that's probably one of the most important things. That's why we, we do all this stuff and know, have to know in and out how and why it works. That's great. Um, Laura, my advice to you is uh, medicine is a very honorable profession. You sacrifice of yourself as you're doing now in order to give to others and I could tell you after 30 years, there's nothing that I would rather do. And I'm very proud to have two daughters like you entering the field. You'll have ups and downs, um, but it's worth it. Jeff, thank you for your expertise in joining us today. And we say in emergency medicine, continue saving lives and stamping out disease. Thank you so much. It's been such a good time. Really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts give you facts and answer your questions. This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support from our sponsors. A sincere and warm thank you to CCR, Center for Community Research in San Diego, enhancing public health and safety through informed action. We want to hear from you. Post a comment or email us about one thing you learned from this program. We thank you for listening and hope you will help our rating by giving us a five-star review. And subscribe so you won't miss any of our information-packed weekly shows. Visit our website, hightruths.com, to submit a question, take a quiz, or download a free prescription for naloxone. Until next week, this is High Truths on Drugs and Addiction. Our producer is Dave Rivas from Davey Boy Productions, and I am your host, Dr. Oni Lev. We hope we brought your day a little bit more high truths.